0: Indeed, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would teach us today from your word. Show us, lead us, guide us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We live in a world that is spiritual but not religious. Spiritual but not religious. N.T. Wright, a New Testament theologian writes about spirituality in a, in a book of his called Broken Signposts, And he explains it this way. His words are better than what I could come up with this week. So let me read from him for just a moment. When people say today that they're not religious, I think this is what they mostly mean. Religion is for yesterday's people, but spirituality is on the move. This difference was marked even within official expressions of Christianity itself. So he explains in this section how in 1969, he was serving as a professor at Oxford University in England, and they brought in a couple of guest speakers to talk about the Christian faith. One of them was a well-known bishop, um, a fine philosopher and speaker, he, he says, and he says his talks were interesting, but not compelling, that Audiences wobbled and slumped in their seats. He says, but the backdrop speaker was Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, a Russian Orthodox archbishop. And he says he was different. He said a few dozen people attended the first day of his school of prayer sessions, one one lunchtime. He said the next day when they came back, the venue was packed. And he says, if I remember correctly, his talks therefore after had to be moved into a larger space. And then he says, it was even so uh, intriguing to students that he would place himself outside the academic buildings at 11 a.m. for the next few days, dressed in his full apparel with his great big Russian beard and his eyes like bottomless pools, he says. And he talked in a steady, quiet voice about God. Crowds gathered and forgot about their lectures. And he says, we witnessed in that week what was the emphatic decline of religion and the sudden interest in spirituality. Just to take it one step deeper, he, he compares something Henry Ford said back in 1909. So Henry Ford, the founder of the Ford Motor Company, in 1909, it's, he, he says that when he put his Model T up for sale for the first time, He offered his customers, quote, any color you like, as long as it's black. And N.T. Wright says, for today, a great many people, it is you can have any kind of spirituality you like, as long as it's not Christianity. You see, to be not religious means that most people today don't go to church, they don't regularly pray, and they maybe most certainly don't read the Bible. But spiritual, that's something that people can get behind, an investigation into the spiritual dimensions of their lives, perhaps glimpsed in something like art or music, or just some kind of encounter with the other world. And I think in Salem, we probably see that pretty clearly. So this series that we're beginning today, which we will go through for the next seven weeks and then conclude on Easter Sunday, is a series that I've, in, I've entitled True Spirituality, which I admit is a little boastful. Uh, But as a Christian, I speak with conviction about what the Bible says about the pursuit of spiritual things and the truth of what Jesus claims. And so during this series, we're going to investigate seven cultural values, I'll call them, that most anyone in the world would say is a good thing. The seven values are curiosity, silence, community, authenticity, rest, beauty, and Easter Sunday, we'll talk about surprise. Who doesn't love a good surprise in life? And Christianity, again, we'll just spoil the ending. Christianity has the best surprise of all, right? These are all commonly accepted spiritual values in our world today, and even for most religions and new spiritualities. And it's hard to deny that any of these things are good. And so what does Christianity have to offer us to each of those seven things? And so as we've mentioned in the service today, Lent is the 40 days that leads us from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, spending 40 days with Jesus through his wilderness encounter when he went out to the wilderness and was tempted and tried by Satan. And ultimately it leads us to the foot of the cross, getting closer and closer to its power over our life. And we'll investigate each of these seven Values through the cross of Jesus and how the cross brings what I think is trueness and depth to each of those. So this week, curiosity. Curiosity is the one we're looking at today. So let me give you a couple of points to ponder on and to chew on. Number one, curiosity is a spiritual discipline. Whenever I was first thinking about this series, I I kind of, Thought of it traditionally in the sense of, oh, we'll do a seven or eight week series on the traditional spiritual disciplines. And I think you'll get a big flavor of that in these next seven weeks. That each of these things that I'm going to talk about have a a traditional spiritual discipline with them things like prayer, things like fasting, things like study, things like the church and community. But I also thought it'd be helpful for us to try to connect it with what we see in our larger world. And that's where a word like curiosity I think comes in. Curiosity was a word that I've heard a lot just in in mainstream culture recently. I've heard it everywhere from um, a documentary on Tom Brady, which I mentioned a few weeks ago in a sermon. I heard it on a podcast about basketball. And I heard it in a counseling session that I was in one day about being curious about what is happening even with your brain or with your heart. But the, really the first thing I thought about when I heard the word curiosity was the famous phrase, curiosity killed the cat. Maybe that's what came to mind for you too. And so I began to look into that. What does that even mean? I don't have any cats. I Cats are curious, I guess. But what is, what's the origin of curiosity killed the cat? And like most things, when you Google it, you find more than what you really were looking for it's like, really? That's how it started? There's a long story here. I'll try to cut to the chase as much as I can. Um, but basically what I found was this, is that the proverb curiosity killed the cat actually originated with the phrase care killed the cat. C-A-R-E, which is like, what does that mean? And it's this expression that's kind of lost its, its term today. But if you go back a couple of generations, the the term care meant something different, it means this. By care, the coiner of the expression meant worry or sorrow rather than our more usual contemporary look, uh, contemporary look after or provide for. So care means worry or sorrow. So if you take the phrase care killed the cat, it means worry or sorrow killed the cat. And that was just the way they would say it 100 years ago. And so this eventually got into the mainstream Um, you know and so they'll say uh, sorrow care will kill the cat Uptails all and a a loose for the hangman is what helter skelter says and then there's the proverbial expression that eventually turned into uh, what we see today curiosity killed the cat and so as we think about even that phrase what does curiosity mean is it a good thing or a bad thing and this is where throughout history, it's actually gone back and forth a little bit. Is it good to be curious or is it bad to be curious? Curiosity killed the cat seems to imply that the more you look into something, it'll eventually kill you. Stop asking, stop asking the hard questions, maybe. Even Augustine, St. Augustine, one of the famous early Christian fathers, he was asked this question. Some Greek people came up to him and asked him, They said, what was God doing before he created the world? And Augustine quipped back in response and said, quote, he was creating hell for curious souls, implying that curiosity will eventually lead you to a bad place, hell, not the good place. So there was this negative connotation on curiosity. On the contrary today, though, I would say that curiosity is a good thing. And most people would say it is good to be curious, to be ever probing into things, going deeper into things. Other spiritualities in the world may frown upon it and say, don't ask questions, just believe. Or if you're questioning something that's that's doubting it, just trust in it. Some spiritualities would say that. Other spiritualities on the other hand would overemphasize curiosity to the point where there really is no truth or conviction at all. And they would say, be so curious to where the the value is just keep asking questions. Find what's true for you. That's where curiosity ultimately leads to. And that's maybe what Augustine or curiosity killed the cat gets to. But in general, curiosity and inquisitiveness, I would say is on the rise. I I read this week, uh, which this was striking to me because I have a four-year-old. She's almost five, um, but the average four-year-old asks, do you know how many questions they ask each day on average? 407. Someone did a research project and they said, an average four-year-old asks 407 questions a day. And even wider for adults, I think it's good to ask questions. What is curiosity though? It's not just looking to learn something It's not just looking for knowledge or even wisdom. It's not just mere questioning for questioning's sake. Some people love just to ask questions and make that their hobby without ever actually intending to arrive at something. But curiosity is about journeying into mystery, capital M mystery, into the unknown, into the depths of life seeking real answers. Curiosity is a humility forming exercise To ask questions is to admit you don't know the answer. Curiosity leads you to a deeper place of doing something with your curiosity that serves others. And so what makes Christianity unique then with regards to curiosity? Just give you a couple of quick things here. Number one, Jesus clearly encouraged curiosity through his parables, through his stories, through his life. He was someone who probed people to think outside the cultural norm or outside the assumptions. Jesus and the gospels asked 307 questions. And he himself was asked 183 questions. And there's a book actually that's out there that talks about all the questions that Jesus was asked. And they note that he only answers three of them directly. If you read the Gospels, you see that when Jesus is asked a question, how does he usually respond? By asking a deeper question about their question. He encourages curiosity. He encourages us to have the faith of a four year old child, which asks 407 questions a day. Remember, he uplifts children and says, Have the faith of a child, which I think leads us, in some sense, to ask questions, to be curious. Christianity is a faith that is comfortable with the mystery, with the transcendence, with things like the Trinity or heaven and hell, or suffering and redemption, or the cross. these mysterious, deep mysteries of God. Christianity is comfortable leaving us without a hundred percent of the answers, but encourages us to live our life curiously, going deeper with the Holy Spirit. The church. Is the place in the world for questions, for questioners, for skeptics, for doubters, but for true seeking within those doubts and questions and longings. There's a church in New York City that a couple of decades ago, when they were planting, they would put front and center on their website two words skeptics welcome. And think about a place like New York City where there's surely a lot of people who are skeptical about the person of Jesus, about the Bible, about Christianity, to read that front and center on their website, to feel I can go there and investigate and ask questions and not be judged. That's what the church is supposed to be. And friends in a city like Salem, we have to learn to do that better than most places. So are you curious? I hope you are, because I'm going to keep talking for about 15 more minutes. Point number two, let's get to our text now. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. We're going to look at parables of Jesus most weeks, these next seven weeks, because parables are a great example of how Jesus encourages curiosity by not giving direct answers, but by probing us to deeper answers through our own processing, and our own thinking. So point number two is this. Curiosity finds us. Look at verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. So what I want you to notice first and foremost is it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Pause for a second. You want to know what God's kingdom is like? Treasure. The kingdom of God is like treasure. Verse 44 is treasure oriented. We're looking at the whole thing now through the lens of a treasure. It doesn't tell us what kind of treasure it is. Just treasure, value, deep worth, something amazing. So the first truth we can learn here is that there is treasure in the world. That's what the parable pushes us deeper to. There is something Beautiful and longing in our world that we can all find. And it's treasure. It's like the little kid who gets excited about reading about pirates going on treasure hunts. So we too as humans should be curious to go find whatever that treasure is. And this parable teaches us actually that the treasure actually finds us sometimes. Curiosity finds us. How do I see that? You see here it says that the treasure is hidden in a field. And note here that the man or the person, he wasn't looking for it. Do you notice that about verse 44? It just says, it says there's a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found. It didn't say he was pursuing it. It just says, it doesn't say he stumbled upon it, but I think that's the assumption. He found it. He didn't have a map. He didn't, there wasn't an X mark marks the spot. It just was, he found this treasure that was unseen It was not evident, and he found it. Curiosity was given to him because it seemingly was revealed to him. And so what do I do now that I've found this, the man says. And you can see right away he realized that it was something special because he, as soon as he found it, he covered it back up, meaning that he didn't want others to come and take it from him. He wanted it so badly for himself, which I don't think is a selfish thing here. He found it, he covers it back up and he valued it deeply right away. What was it about this treasure? But notice too here that while he was afraid of other people potentially stealing it, notice that he doesn't steal it himself. He covers it back up and then he goes, he leaves it. He could have taken it with him. But at this, at this point, legally, it wasn't his, right? It would, who knows where it originated from, whose field he was in. It's a, the assumption here is that no one owns it. But he didn't, he didn't take the chance to just take it. He went, sold everything that he has, and bought it legally. Why do I emphasize something like that? And the reason is, is because a true treasure is never stolen, And let's think about the Old Old Testament and the story of the Bible. There are some examples of stolen treasure in the Bible. The famous example I can think of is Jacob and Esau, right? Esau had the birthright in the family and Jacob deceived his father and stole the birthright, the treasure, and seemingly gets away with it. But the true treasure that Jesus talks about cannot be stolen, should not be stolen. And the man goes and buys it legally. He sells everything he has so he can buy the field and then own it himself. But why was the treasure even hidden in the first place, you may say? You say, if this treasure is so important, if so many people need it and could find joy in it, why is it even hidden? Why isn't it just sitting up on like a big pedestal somewhere, shining light on it? Shouldn't it be open for anyone available to find? But the reality of scripture that that the scriptures teach us is that true treasure has to be buried and hidden because we ourselves are broken. We can't just Indiana Jones it and walk straight up to the treasure and grab it, which we saw what happened to him too, by the way, when he touched the treasure. We can't just walk up to it straight like that because there's a barrier between Broken humans, sinful humans, and the true treasure. Something has to give. And in this parable, it's going, selling all that you have to get it. By his grace, by God's grace, treasure is not gone forever. It's just hidden. And the curiosity of the world leads us to try to figure out how can this treasure be ours? Curiosity finds us. Treasure finds us. What I wanna show you here is that treasure, when you find it or when it finds you is transformational. This man goes from just a man walking seemingly during the day to a man who is filled with joy and sells every possession he has because he sees that treasure. It has changed his life. Treasure is transformational. Point number three. Not only does curiosity find you, but the second parable teaches us that actually curiosity becomes our life. A Christian's life is a life of true curiosity. So you could say curiosity finds you, but also you have to go find curiosity. You continue on in your life to be a curious person. Verses 45 and 46 are not treasure oriented anymore, but now they are you oriented. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like, now not the treasure, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. You see that? It's not about the treasure anymore. It's about the person who now is in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So these verses now turn to you, turn to me and you and say, this is now about us, the curious ones. In verse 45, we are described as merchants. Humans and you and me are meant to be treasure seekers. That's what a merchant is here. A merchant is someone who travels great distances to find treasure, to find things of great value so they can live off of that. We are people who are in the business of traveling around this life for multiple reasons. And the true business reason, the true merchant, the true merchant, merchant purpose for your life is to live for the treasure of the kingdom of God, the gospel, the good news that the treasure here is representing. Or you can be a merchant who is doing your own business, doing the business of your own ventures or enterprises. But what is important about this passage, verses 45 and 46, is that God is looking directly at you. God is caring about your heart, your soul, your transformation, about transforming you into the truest version of yourself that is available in the world. And curiosity is what leads you into that. When the life of curiosity is entered into, life becomes clear. Just notice how in verse 45 and 46, how specific things get. That the general things that are mentioned in verse 44, about the treasure, about the man... Those things get more specific in verse 45 and 46. So the man becomes a merchant. The treasure becomes pearls, which are deeply valuable in the ancient world, still are. I gave my wife pearls on our first anniversary because they were that invaluable. Notice that the task here is more specific. Again, the man doesn't just stumble into the treasure anymore. Now he is in search of fine pearls. He is going to find treasure, the specific treasure that is pearls. He wants to find it. And that's where life takes us. When we want to find the treasures because we know how valuable it is, we go in pursuit of it. Life only gets more and more curious, not less curious. The minute you become a Christian does not mean the curiosity is over. It means the curiosity begins. There's a, a Jewish writer named Abraham Joshua Heschel who says, Knowledge is fostered by curiosity, wisdom is fostered by awe. A W E, awe. When you see treasure and the treasure giver, you add, that is fostered by a pursuit of wisdom. And notice now that there's a more specific discovery that happens. In verse 44, he finds the treasure. In verse 45, he was in search of many pearls, plural pearls, many of them with an S. In verse 46, what does he find? One pearl. When he finds that one pearl, does he say, where's the rest of them? I gotta find all of them, I need more. When he finds the one pearl of great value, He says, that's all I need. I can sell everything I have for that one pearl. The emphasis here is for us the reminder that there are, as Jesus says, only one way to true life. Jesus says in a couple different ways. He says in one place, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those that enter it are many. He says, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And then of course he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. One pearl, one beautiful pearl. Why then is it so hard to find, you would say? Why is it that there's only one You can find. Again, if there were many pearls, it'd be easier to find, right? But seemingly, here there is one pearl that changes lives. Why is it so hard to find? Why is there only one? Why isn't it more easily understandable or findable? Is Christianity really just a needle in a haystack? A few things here. The fact that there's only one means that actually, whenever you find that one, you see that all the other ones pale in comparison. When there's a genuine something, that means all the other ones are counterfeits and not nearly as valuable. And so when you see the one, you see the truth, you see the fullness of it. Secondly, the one pearl here is unexpected, I would say. You see the merchant was simply looking for any fine pearls. The word there could just mean good. He's just looking for good pearls but what he actually finds was unexpected because it was more than what he expected. It wasn't just fine pearls that he found, but it was the one pearl of great value. His lid was blown because he found the one that was more than what he was even looking for. It was unexpectedly above and beyond. And I would argue friends, I can't prove this to you, but I would argue that lastly, the one pearl reveals itself to you only once. It doesn't mean you can't go back and find it again, but it reveals itself to you once because all you need is one. If all you need is one, that when you, when you see it, you will truly find it, you will taste it, you will see it, and you won't turn back from it. Again, it reveals itself to you in some sense. You will respond to it with your life. And this is the final point. What does the cross have to do with curiosity? There's a word that I've mentioned just once so far, but now we're gonna hammer it home, joy. In his joy, when he found the treasure, found the pearl, in his joy, he went and sold everything. It's the only true response to finding the treasure, this inexpressible, unexplainable, unreplaceable joy It becomes worth everything you have to get it and to acquire it forever. Wouldn't you sacrifice everything you have for true everlasting joy? How do you buy the true treasure then? This man goes and sells everything he has and buys it. How do you buy joy? You can't, you can't buy it. And this is the message of Lent. This is the message of Easter. You can't buy joy. Joy buys you. At the cross, Jesus lays down his life to buy you back. And all he asks in return is your heart. The love of Christ controls us. For we, co- we have concluded that because one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, and 21. The cross is the place to truly investigate life in true curiosity. I invite you during this season, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, to take a hard contemplative look at the cross of Jesus. What do you make of it? What better solution could there be for the problems of the world? What better guide could there be for joy? Some of you have been to the campus of Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I know some of you like to do walks there or maybe have studied there. Um, but at the very top, it's the highest point in Essex County where Gordon Conwell Seminary is. It sits on top of this hill. They call it the Holy Hill. Um, but at the very top, there's a tall building. At the very top of that tall building is the cross. And at one point, I, I heard this from a professor. At one point, they were talking about maybe taking down that cross because it got struck by lightning. And they said, this could be dangerous. They were talking about maybe at one point taking down the cross because it had become a lightning rod. And they were talking about it. And somehow um, the people at Logan Airport heard about this, which I, I can't remember how exactly that connection got made. But somehow the people at Logan Airport found out about this. And you know what they said? Please don't take down the cross. Because that is the way that we know that we're on that's that's the, the way we know we're on the right path to getting down to Logan, coming north. That when we're coming from the north down to Logan Airport, when we see the cross at the top of that campus, we know we're on the right trajectory, and that we're gonna land safely. They said if you take down the cross, we're gonna get lost. Now just think about the power and the metaphor there. So what did Gordon Conwell do? They left the cross up, it's still there today. I actually ran into someone who works at Logan Airport, not actually, not Logan, another airport. And I just, I wanted to validate this. I was like, is that a thing? Do, do they have landmarks like this? And he said, absolutely. There are landmarks that air, air, airplanes use and that flight crews use to guide them home. And north of Boston, it's the cross at the top of Gordon-Conwell. May that be for us. May the cross be our guide that lands us safely. Through fog, through rain, through snow, through trials, lands us safely at home. The phrase, curiosity killed the cat, there's actually a later edition that now comes in. If you look this up, curiosity killed the cat, and satisfaction brought him back. In joy, he went and sold all that he had. Friends, may that be our reality as well. Let me close us with a prayer as we pray. prepared to approach the Lord's table together. This is gonna be a prayer by uh, someone named St. Anselm of Canterbury, several hundred years old. It's an ancient prayer that beautifully describes um, our longing during this Lenten season. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, grant us grace to desire you with our whole heart, that desiring you, we may seek you, and that seeking you, we may find you and that finding you, we may love you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.